0: Sometimes themes emerge on retreats. Um, I don't know where they come from, but certain things just start to show up. And it seems that one of the themes uh, for us on this retreat has been the letting go. Letting go, this non-attachment, and what it means to not be attached, which also points to the, uh, the, the process of identification and the way that we identify with a sense of self, as we talked about last night. So this whole thing around attachment and identification and letting go seems to be something that we're looking quite deeply into together on this retreat. And what's there when we let go? <laughs> Is anything there? There's nothing there. This exploration and diving in into this letting go. So, I wanted to go a little bit further on this theme tonight. This, what is it, what does it mean to let go? What are we letting go of? (laughs) Anyhow, actually that's a good question. (laughs) What are we letting go of? Because the Buddha was actually very clear about this. So, I wanted to go into that a little bit more in detail, what it is that we're actually letting go of. And partly this theme arose for me from this one question that, that came up this morning in the discussion around pain. Um, when Doris asked about, well, pain, pain has a place, you know, there's a pain has uh, is telling us something and we can't just let go of that because what would happen? and I think that's a really good point because it's not really what we're being asked to let go of. This word pain, um, it is one of the ways that the word dukkha is translated. Sometimes dukkha, Pali word, the word that is um, the, the, uh, the first noble truth that there is dukkha There is dukkha in this life. Sometimes that's translated as pain. There is pain in this life. And and then to the second noble truth is to see the cause of that pain and then the way to let go of that pain. But it's really not the right translation. It's not a good translation because of that confusion, because it can seem like we're letting go of something physical, because a lot of times we experience the pain physically in our body. And somehow, if we really understood the second noble truth, if we, in the third noble truth, if we knew how to let go and to release, then we wouldn't feel any pain, physical pain, even. And I know that that's not an un, uh, unusual uh, conception around spiritual teachings, that, you know, when you're really an enlightened being, you know, you don't feel, you're, you're, there's no unpleasant experience. <laughs> You know, that that there's a way that the consciousness is completely free of anything unpleasant or painful. <coughs> and that's not true. No. Um, and I, I remember in the early days when I would be surprised when I'd hear about some of the uh, passings of some of the great masters, like um, uh, Ramana Maharshi know, who was, you know, very, very ill in the last stage of his life and had a lot of pain, a lot of physical pain. And so, in a way, that's not, that's really not what the the teachings are about. No, it's really about, but our relationship to the dukkha, the dukkha. Duke, there is dukkha, that's the first noble truth. There is dukkha in this life. That means that there is unsatisfactoriness, there is unpleasantness, there is, even suffering isn't actually the right, the best word, because suffering, there's a wonderful uh, phrase some of you may have heard, that pain is inevitable, suffering is optional, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. So really what the what the Buddhist teachings are concerned with is the is the suffering element is the is the pain is that it is hard to talk about it without the word pain so I won't try but it's that because because suffering which is a mental suffering that we're talking about a, a mental suffering it it is painful it it has a um, a heat, a ache, um, an intensity that's like pressure, a tightness, a compression um, is painful. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. But it's not physical. It's mental. And so, so really, what we're, what the Buddha is interested in is the how, what gives rise to this mental pain, because that's what we can work with. The body is going to go through what it goes through. It's going to, there's going to be unpleasant sensations, there's going to be pleasant sensations, there's going to be in between, or I had this reflection during my sitting just now, sometimes it's pleasant and unpleasant at the same time. (laughs) It's like moving so fast that it's hard to tell whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Sometimes it just has that kind of intensity where both can be happening at the same time but that's also just flavor or feeling of experience but what we're really examining is is this um the unsatisfactory nature of our existence what gives this sense of our life being unsatisfied unfulfilled ungratified um, kind of just yuck (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I think maybe these kinds of words might be a little <laughs> more accurate. <laughs> you know, just yuck. <laughs> you know, it's that—that's what we're wanting to to look into and get to. The Buddha, the Buddha said, let what we need to look at are the conditions which bring about more pain and discontent more suffering and discontent not the conditions that necessarily bring about freedom from pain that's the result that's the result that's what we get when we examine the conditions that are actually bringing about these unsatisfactory uh, states of mind when we see that and we understand that and work with that and let go of it what's there are the satisfactory states of mind What's there is the happiness and the peace and the contentment and the joy and the generosity, the love, and that's what's there and I'm I'm hoping you're getting more of a sense of that because it can be easy to, in the practice, particularly the practice when we're dismantling in the way that we are, dismantling this sense of ourselves, dismantling this ego, initially it can seem like we're letting go of everything, everything we've ever known, everything we've ever had, and that's actually what we're supposed to do, even to the point where it comes to our physical possessions, like I'm supposed to get rid of everything, you know, I'm not even supposed to have a car, I'm not even supposed to live in a house, I'm not supposed to eat food, I'm not supposed to wear clothes, you know, I mean, this, you can take it to a little bit of an extreme, this, this renunciation or this asceticism, you know, that somehow uh, if, I, if I let go of everything, I, even all my physical possessions, then I'd really understand uh, what gives rise to the, rise to dukkha. But the Buddha was very clear that that's not what he was talking about. There's enough. There were enough sadhus and ascetics in India that he said that's not going to get you anywhere. You know these uh, naked sadhus would stand on one foot for you know a year or two years and think that that was going to give them some kind of high attainment, and he'd look at them and say, "You're just." creating conditions for more suffering, <laughs> you know, what makes you think that you're going to be more free doing that, <laughs> you know, or, you know, uh, burying themselves in in mud and, uh, you know, maybe just having a little, you know, a couple straws coming out <laughs> of the nostrils, you know, maybe if I <laughs> really create these very, very bare and ascetic conditions, then I'll find out what's left, <laughs> right? we don't have to go that far. <laughs> Buddha said that's creating more more suffering, more suffering. So let's look at and then of course he was criticized for that because during that time they thought he was kind of fluffing off, you know, fluffing off, you know, you're not a real practitioner. You you know, you're not doing what it really takes. And so so in some ways he got, you know, very um a uh, lot of accusations, a lot of criticism. It wasn't just a piece of cake for the Buddha <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, when you think um you know if you if you have a, a radical body of teachings, uh, don't think for a minute that people aren't going to really stand up and try to knock you down, make you wrong. So um he had his work cut out for him, I'm quite sure. So he was, you know, he was saying, you know, let's, let's, you don't have to go that far. Y- you know, just, just look at your own mind. Look at the conditions within your own mind. And he basically was pointing to looking at these three uh, forces of mind, the, the greed, the, the desire, the aversion, the, the hatred and the rejection, and the confusion. Just look at those three forces of mind, because those are the roots of of your suffering, those are the roots of your dukkha. And when you pull out those roots, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> you'll be you'll be happier, you know. So so we're just kind of we're just looking at those conditions. We're really looking at those particular of conditions which give us this sense of confinement. You know, this sense of of being being trapped in some kind of confined space. And this word I brought up last night, this neroda, you know, neuroda without impediment, you know, without the the walls, free free of the imprisonment. You know, this, this these kinds of images or or metaphors that we evoke of what we're what we're pointing to. Manindraji, this wonderful uh, Indian, uh, little Indian man from Calcutta, who was Joseph Goldstein's teacher uh, in the 70s when he was first uh, coming across these teachings. Later on, uh, Joseph brought Manindraji to uh, to Insight Meditation Society, and a number of us met him and had teachings from him. And then he came to California, and uh, we spent time with him. And one of those things about Manindraji is he was very happy. No, he's very happy and so he would basically say to us you know when you're happy be happy (laughs) you know very when you're happy be happy he said but when you're not happy then take a look at what's happening that you're not happy (laughs) but when you're happy just enjoy your happiness you know and it's one of the things that I think sometimes, you know, if we're very serious and you know we work really hard and we're really driven to uh, overcome and think we have to understand and get somewhere, and you know we have this driver that you know that will will probably miss (laughs) the fact that a lot of time we're things are just fine, you know, that we're actually maybe not happy, maybe depending on your association with that word, (laughs) maybe that's a little too strong. (laughs) But, you know, you're probably basically content, you know, and that's where this um, neutral experiences can, you know, when we're paying attention to the neutral experience can be kind of interesting because it's actually a time when there's not so much impinging. not so much impinging because, but if we actually are used to a lot of simulation or doing or activity, we're not, we're gonna think something's wrong if there's not much impinging. Not much is happening. But if you, again, like I said this morning, if you just kind of just, just a, turn that just a centimeter, an angle, shift the angle just a centimeter, you might feel that it's kind of a relief not to have anything impinging (laughs) if you let yourself feel that it's actually a pretty satisfactory state kind of a peaceful, peaceful state you know and the kind of the ironic thing is that it's what we think we want we ask for peace we ask for stillness or stilling Uh, we ask for calm, tranquility. Well, in those, those times, as we go through the day, when that's actually occurring, we easily miss it because we've got this, this driver that is looking for something, of course, and that's run by all the inner anxiety. So, so it's important to recognize these times when we're happy just not, and again, I, maybe that I I can sense maybe that word is misleading. Uh, I could just kind of sense like, well, I'm just not really a happy sort, you know. <laughs> you know, and so you can, you know, I won't take that away from you. <laughs> it might be a little premature. <laughs> To take away that piece of your identity, you know, you may you may need to hold on to that one for a little longer. <laughs> so so let's just use the word um, maybe at ease. <laughs> at ease, if you can go there. There's this wonderful teaching from uh, the Majjhima Nikaya, one of the uh, books that has the teachings of the Buddha. And uh, the Buddha, as you know, uses lots of metaphors, lots of similes for his teachings. And they're all, you know, right from 2,500 years ago during the time of the Buddha. So it gives us a little, you know, window into the uh, life at that time. And so this is a teaching that I think points to this uh, um, uh, letting go letting go of, of uh, uh, when, the, when, the, when there's peace and there's some um, lack of impingement, just rest. So the Buddha says, just as, just as in the month of the rainy season, in the autumn when the crops thicken, a cow herder would guard his cows by constantly tapping and poking them on this side and that side with a stick to check and curb them. Why is that? Because he sees that he could be flogged, imprisoned, fined, or blamed, if he let them stray into the crops. So, too, I saw that in certain states of mind, there were the seeds of suffering, and in wholesome states, the blessings of renunciation and purification. So when the seeds of suffering were there, he had to get the stick out and sort of prod and poke and, you know, get the cows back into the field because otherwise if they start to wander out, he could get imprisoned or fined or flogged. There's danger there. So bring the cows back, (laughs) you know, get them kind of, you know, Clustered here and then he says just as in the last month of the hot season when all the crops have been brought inside the villages, a cowherder would guard his cows while staying at the root of a tree since he needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. So too there was need for me only to be mindful that those states were there. So it's like you don't take your eye off the cows just because they're back in the field. <laughs> and, you know, things are kind of uh, peaceful and not chaotic. You, you just he's you basically rest at the foot of the tree. Just rest back. Take a break. <laughs> take a break. You don't have to work so hard. You don't have to get the stick out because all the cows are happily at home. And rest. But yet we we have to really notice that, you know, the Buddha the Buddha talks about guarding the mind. It's guarding the mind is one of the uh, phrases that's used a lot in the teachings. And it's guard guarding the mind means that you, when when there's not much going on, you're you're guarding the mind because it, they, the, the 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 cows could start wandering off. <laughs> And that's when you get in. So you guard the mind so that you can get the stick out and bring them back. So you've got to pay attention because at any time those cows could start wandering off. (laughs) And, And you don't have any control if you're resting back at the foot of the tree and the cows are out there kind of just hanging out. At any time they could just wander off. So it's not like it's your fault right? I mean, if you're just the cow herder, <laughs> you know, keeping your, it's not your fault that the cows are wandering into the farmer's pasture, but we, we take it so personally. We blame ourselves. Well, I suppose if, you know, some, if, maybe if you were the cow, cow herder, you'd blame yourself because the cows were wandering off, but, but perhaps you could see that that's kind of silly because it's not your fault, that's just what cows do. <laughs> right? Especially if there's no fence. So so we want to see what happens, you know, if we'd kind of just let go a little bit, let let them wander and then we know that all we have to do is just get up, prod them back and then when they're back just rest again. And 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 basically, again, you know, it's it's kind of that simple. Of course, it doesn't seem that simple, but it is that simple. That's basically what we're working with. This morning, we were looking at this quality of pleasure and the pleasant quality, the unpleasant quality, that which is in between. And it's interesting that when we start to look at the nature of experience in this way, there can actually, again, be something kind of threatening about it. Because when we just look at pleasure for what it is and we say, let go of it, that that can also be a little disconcerting. But, but I don't want to let go of my pleasure. What does it mean that I have to just see pleasure for what it is and then let go? No, it's like it, it, it's again the the ego comes in and says, "Well, you're taking my pleasure away. I like my ple- I like to feel my pleasures. I like I like the pleasurable things in my life. Well, I don't understand this letting go thing." And yet when we look more directly at the pleasure, we see that it's just a momentary or sometimes a little longer experience, stays for a little while, and then it changes. It changes to something maybe a little less pleasurable, or maybe it'll change to something painful for a little while, and then it's painful. We might resist it, and, and, but yet we say we'll feel that, and then, and then we're with it, and then it changes and it might become kind of neutral. And so it's funny how that can almost seem a little threatening because it seems like, well, then I don't have any control or, or maybe somehow I, I can't have my pleasures. But, but when we look, we see that's not really what it is. Again, the pleasure is going to come. N- nobody's saying that you can't have your pleasure. Pleasure is everywhere. <laughs> Again, it's, it's what are the conditions that give rise to more suffering is the grasping on, the holding on to that pleasure, trying to keep it, trying to maintain it, trying to corral it, trying to make it stay, because when we do that, it's not going to work, right? It's not going to work, so we are holding on and we're suffering, the conditions that give rise to the suffering. So we just see it for what it is, let it be, enjoy it, feel it, be 100% there when the pleasure comes, when the joy comes, when the rapture comes, and and in a wonderful experience comes, enjoy that, and know that it will change on its own accord. And if I'm still holding on to it, then I'm going to be dragged along, (laughs) (laughs) You're really dragged along. I'm going to feel like I'm being dragged along, wanting it back or hoping I can get it again. Where am I? I'm lost. I'm lost again. The Buddha says in the Sutta Napata says, in every direction there are things you know and recognize. Leave them. Do not look to them for rest or relief. Do not let consciousness dwell on the products of existence, on things that come and go. Such as direct teaching. In every direction there are things you know and recognize. Leave them. So again, you know, we could hear this and it's like (laughs) you know, it could be confusing. We have to leave everything and then there's going to be nothing and where am I and who am I? But I hope you're getting the sense of what the what's what's underlying it's because things come and go. And when we're still holding on to the way things were, we're living in the past. We're living in the past and the past is dead. <laughs> it's dead. It's so dead. It's disintegrated. <laughs> We're holding on to some kind of fantasy memory or representation, image in the mind. It's not real anymore. It's it's just um, a memory. Or we may fabricate some kind of future idea, some kind of fantasy about how, recreating that. And that's not real either. It's it's a nothing there and then we live in this kind of ghost like reality we're not we're not here where there's the uh, elements of the earth and the the fire and the the water and the the um earth fire water and air <laughs> the one that's not so tangible <laughs> and space <laughs> here Mm-hmm. this thing from Ram Dass that I'm trying to find where I wrote it I can't think of it so I'm going to let it go <laughs> Ajahn Semedo says Ajahn Semedo the wonderful uh, elder elder monk in our tradition Canadian actually Ajahn Semedo is Canadian he says The mind is like space, there is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know that space of mind, its emptiness. Because armies can come and go into the mind, butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things come and go through the mind without us being in reaction or resistance. All things come and go. Armies, butterflies, rain clouds, you name it. You name it and it's come into your mind. (laughs) And it will go. The mind is so spacious so accommodating, so benevolent in that way, as long as we're not resisting or holding on. Because, as you know, if we're holding on, then it kind of clutters the space. And many of us have very cluttered spaces. And some of you may even have not only cluttered spaces in your mind, but you may have cluttered spaces in your house. Which may be, I'm not sure, but an extension of your mind in some way. (laughs) You know, so we look. You know, we look at the ways that we're either creating space or the ways we create clutter, inner and outer, which is really what we're examining you know, so how, what, what are the conditions that can bring about more space? Another way of talking about it, rather than these conditions of suffering which all come about through the grasping and the holding and the possessing and the cherishing and, you know, all of that which just crowds the space. And it's just crowded with a lot of old junk. So I'll let go. So we let go. We make space for something new. This is from Rumi, the wonderful Sufi poet. He says, don't worry about saving these songs. And if one of our instruments breaks, it doesn't matter. We have fallen into the place where everything is music. The strumming and the flute notes rise in the atmosphere. And even if the whole world's harp should burn up, there will still be hidden instruments playing. Even if the whole world's harp should burn up, there will still be hidden instruments playing. And it reminds me today of our um, sound meditation. You know, sometimes there was a more obvious sound, more grosser sounds, and then that sound would die away and then if there was enough stillness and presence there were all the more subtle sounds in the whole atmosphere you know? and then there would rise up something that was much more tangible again it would crowd out the more subtle sounds and then they then the that that stronger sound would die away and then there's all the subtle sounds right there if for for our taking, if we're interested, if the mind is available, there's always something there's always something there. you don't have to look very far for experience. <laughs> experience is always here. So it's this grasping that builds the tension in the mind. When we're holding on, we, we actually feel, we can feel the tension of all that holding, all of that attachment. And it, and it builds up as a kind of pressure. It's like there's so much going on So many things we're trying to hold on to, whether it's memories of all the different situations we may be engaged in or something that just happened in the recent past or something that we're worried about that might happen or, you know, and all this is, you know, moving in the mind and it just builds up, can build up attention, can build up a pressure. And the interesting thing is the way that the mind actually discharges that pressure is through thinking about it if we think about it we actually think that somehow we're going to get rid of it and that's what a lot of the analyzing is and trying to figure it out and the worrying and thinking it's like well maybe if i can think about it it'll go away (laughs) i can come to a solution and when i get the solution it'll be done and this is the difficulty is that sometimes it works (laughs) so then we think it worked that time it's probably going to work the other time, but it's, it's just, uh, it doesn't work all the time, right? Sometimes we just find ourselves in this whirlwind of our mind trying to figure something out or, or worrying about it, and, and maybe if I could just think it through or just get it all worked out, this certain scenario in my mind, then it, then it'll happen like that, and then, then we feel some relief and then we get into the situation and of course reality is totally different than anything we ever think about (laughs) or ever imagine and so and so so that thinking just in this thinking and there the, the the word for that is papancha you know this wonderful word it's fun to say papancha papancha is this proliferation of thought associated thought where one thought goes to the next thought the next thought the next thought you know and then it's like jumping on a train and then you're off the train is off to some destination and then before you know you're at a destination you don't even know how you got there and you didn't want to even be there you thought you were going somewhere else you got on the wrong train you think you know how did i get on this one <laughs> this papancha you know which is all this discharging through the mind, trying to, trying to again, find some kind of uh, relief, rest and relief. But the Buddha says, in every direction there will be things you know and recognize. Leave them. Don't look to them for rest and relief. So even the things of the mind, the thoughts, so pick the images, the fantasies, the worries, the regrets just get ourselves into a tangle do not let consciousness dwell on the products of existence on things that come and go on things that come and go and these thoughts in the mind they give rise to these impulses So in this discharge, we get these impulses. And the impulses come into the body and they move us into action. And so we'll say things and we'll do things. And it's all part of that papancha. It's all part of that proliferation. And usually, I mean, if there's not not much consciousness in it, then those impulses are just moving us into a kind of speech, saying things that we wish we could rewind a lot of the time or acting in ways that we we may later regret. But we may not understand where those actions arose from because we haven't broken down the sequencing. And seeing that, it's all this movement in the mind give rise to habitual speech and action just like that's how we get into the automation or the habitual way of being is that we're not really examining what's moving through our mind we're not really paying close enough attention and before you know it the words are just coming right out or our body's moving into some kind of action and of course you know the difficulty with this is particularly when there is the forces of greed, which moves us into habits of desire for things that may not be very good for us, but are pleasurable, like food or um, uh, different kinds of habits of addictions or compulsions, um, uh, uh, things we're trying to fill ourselves up with, TV or gambling or, you know, whatever it is, uh, alcohol, drugs, um, any, anything. We're trying to fill that up. Mm-hmm. So again, finding some rest or relief, but we're just act the action, the acting out because there's not the examination, there's not the understanding, or the opposite, you know, the hatred or the or the aversion, you know, that that this very dangerous tendency, where we're just the thoughts are moving through the mind, and before you know, it, we're saying things we wish we hadn't said, we're doing things that are harmful or hurtful in some way through that through that. Uh Anger or the aversion in the mind, and so these are this is what the Buddha says. you know not only is there suffering in the mind, but if it if it comes out, if it discharges out, then we're causing pain not only to ourselves but to others. And then sooner or later, our whole reality starts to become one that is very difficult. Our relationships, our our work situations, our you know different, our 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 uh, family situations. Depending on other things we're engaged with, whether it's politics or social things, you know, if we're a social activist and there isn't a clear understanding of this, we're just in doing, trying to bring social change, just bringing more anger and more aggression and more confusion, and, and it's certainly not helping. So so the Buddha is saying, it's so important to examine this, because then we start to see what gives shape to our reality and how we're actually creating that reality, self-creating, self-generating our reality through the movement in our own mind. I just keep having this reoccurring um, thought. Was um, just the other day when I was meditating. I was, uh, you know, sometimes when you're when the energy starts to sink, the first thing that happens is there's some dream states that start to come. That's just that, that happens because that's the, what happens in a, a body. As you start to sink and go into more of a sleep state, at a certain level, the dreams come before you go into deep, sta- deep sleep. So it's the same thing when you're meditating. Just as the, as the energy starts to drop, then you go into a, a dream state and i was uh feeling a little tired and i and i was sitting here and i and i just started to drop into a little bit of a dream and i actually saw the image of well, it was chris actually i saw an image of chris in the dream in the dream state and then i then i saw myself actually smiling there was actually a smile that came to my face and then i could feel my body starting to sort of move towards Chris <laughs> just you know this hello this friendliness you know and I could and it was so real I could just feel how my mind was creating the image and because there wasn't the awareness there wasn't any connection with the with the mind mindful presence I was in the dream I started to become a character in the dream. And starting to interact with this dream figure. <laughs> and it was so interesting. It only went on for about maybe five seconds. But it just startled me. It just was one of our uh, first time that I actually felt and could see the whole thing happening just in the way that the teachings point to. And the interesting thing is that in some ways we're doing that all the time. (laughs) When we're in our delusion, (laughs) we're not connected to reality, we start to imagine who we're speaking to or what's actually happening, and then we become the character in the dream who's interacting with that fantasy or with that imagination. And and I at a lot of times the whole thing isn't rooted in any reality at all. <laughs> we just we often have these images of who we take people to be based on our own desires, our own wishes our own needs, our own wants, and then we relate to them as if they're that person, and then we get disappointed because they're not fulfilling our needs in the way that we would hope, but we're not even really seeing it's a whole fantasy that we're making up about this person, and they can never fulfill those needs because that's not who they are. So this way that we're generating this kind of imaginary reality through the mind, that just and then gives rise to our speech our body our body takes shape our actions take shape in relationship to the picture in our mind so it's it's helpful to bring some attention to this (laughs) so that perhaps our speech and our actions are more rooted in reality In other words, in the way things really are. This capacity for clear seeing and the wise view to see things as they are. To see things as they are. This is one famous uh, quote from the Buddha, um, from the Dhammapada. And this translation is from uh, Gil Fronsdale and. Uh, A newer translation uh, that he did in the last two years all experience is preceded by mind led by mind made by mind speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox all experience is preceded by mind Led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind. And happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. All experience is preceded by mind. And so when we reflect on this, you know it brings a for me certainly it brings a little bit more sense of urgency to this mindfulness to what it is that we're actually paying attention to and so when we talk about what we're actually letting go of what we're letting go of and through through our mindful attention, which has a quality of discrimination the The awareness can discriminate, can see this from that. We can see if I follow this train of thought, it's likely to lead here, which seems like it's going to cause me some pain and suffering if I keep going that way. And then I look and I see, well, if I follow this train of thought or this impulse, This may lead me to more happiness, to more freedom, to more ease in my life. And so I can begin, through my mindfulness and wisdom, clear seeing, to begin to make those choices. And this is the key to our transformation, that I can make a choice. But I can only make a choice if I see because otherwise I'm just on automatic, and I'm caught in this dreamscape. And I'm just being led around by all the accumulated impressions that have gone before that go into this habitual tendency and way of being, and then I don't have any choice at all. I'm just another character in my dreamscape. But as soon as I bring some awareness And clarity to my mind, I can make a choice. There are options. I have options. (laughs) I don't have to just be a robot. I don't have to be sleepwalking anymore. I can stop. I can say, hey, this is going on. I've got this tension in my mind, this pull. Something wants to pull me in this direction whatever it is, towards this argument or this uh, eating something that I know isn't going to be good for me or watching some more crap on TV or, (laughs) you know, or going to sleep when I know it's not really time to go to sleep and I'm just so bored or, you know, or popping that pill or whatever it is. Or then the wisdom that comes in and says, you know, you have a choice here. You don't have to follow that. You don't have to get on that train. And then stopping and feeling and sensing and see what wants to come through. And maybe something is coming through, something saying, you know, why don't you um, go put on some classical music that you love and and just rest and listen to the music. Or... Um, why not go for a walk? You need some fresh air, or go to the gym and get some exercise. You know that that kind of that kind of yeah, that sounds good. Sounds healthy. That gives me some energy when I think about it. Or read that book I haven't read. Or or not make that phone call because I feel charged. Or Um, standing with a person in the room and all this energy and this anger and this hatred is starting to arise and I can feel how I just want to you know, my hands are starting to move out and I I just want to like shake the person (laughs) and you just feel the whole impulse a whole kind of character arising that wants to create harm and then you're aware of that and you just stop and go, oh, I don't want to I don't want to create that one and then backing off and maybe taking some back steps and going out the room <laughs> and just going in the other room and taking a couple breaths and going, oof, I, I escaped that one. Boy, that was close, you know. So, so, So seeing that we actually have some choice. And this truly is it. This is it. This is the whole key to the transformation, which only comes about through awareness, which is why awareness is so significant and essential, because if we're not aware, there's no hope. There's no hope. It's a hopeless situation. So it's the awareness that actually brings about this change, the awareness that brings about the choice. So things begin to open up with awareness things start to open up and we see that actually there's more possibilities and and it's not just usually just this choice or that choice when we're really present and we really get centered it's like wow I actually have a number of things that I could do here and then more then there's kind of a little more energy then the energy starts to come and with that comes more presence more clear thinking Uh, we start to feel more more in touch with reality and ourselves and where we are and then and then, and then there's more can be more expansion of our consciousness because we're not so caught in that grasping and that clutter so we feel a little bit more spacious and more open and more receptive and and more available to more possibility and then we start feeling this kind of dynamism there's more of a dynamic Vital kind of vitality that starts to come in. And with that, with awareness and the vitality and a kind of dynamism, comes the connection to reality in a greater way. And with reality is infinite possibility, because that's what reality is. Reality is infinite possibility. Reality is constantly creating and recreating infinite diversity and infinite possibility that we call creative dynamism or creation. And then I am creation. I am the one who is creating all these possibilities. They're coming from here, this source, this fountain, this wellspring right here and all kinds of new ideas and new possibilities and my mind opens and I feel good and I feel happy and I'm connected to something much greater than this small limited self who's caught in such small and tiny and often self-deficient ideas and then things start to open up and we have access. So many things we become the artist, the creator, the the one who is creating reality. I am the creator of reality. The moment becomes pregnant with choice through this contact with reality. And then it can seem like we're making a choice. we could you know we can say, well i'm making a choice but but it is it's more than that at this point. It's not even me making the choice. There's almost a feeling of choicelessness because I'm responding to this effulgence this this vitality and that something just starts to happen. There's a kind of spontaneity and there's a, a movement and a connection and an expression and something takes shape, something takes form, and I am that. I am that which is taking form. I am that which is being created. <coughs> and I can't even say so much that I'm choosing that. It's almost as if something's creating me. And it's hard to know anymore whether I am the creator or whether there's another creator that's creating me or whether there's just some kind of divinity or mystery or (laughs) magic. It's just all happening and I don't even understand it anymore. I can't even make sense of it anymore, but it's magnificent and it's, amazing and I'm awestruck by this creation something has let go I'm just that Rumi again don't worry about saving these songs and if one of our instruments breaks it doesn't matter <laughs> we have fallen into the place where everything is music the strumming and the flute notes rise in the atmosphere and even if the whole world's harp should burn up, there will still be hidden instruments playing. I want to end with this poem from Pablo Neruda. Pablo Neruda was the most important Latin American poet of the 20th century. He's she's from Chile. And he won a Nobel Prize in literature. So, his poetry is so... I can't say the word. And it was at that age poetry arrived in search of me I don't know, I don't know where it came from, from winter or a river. I don't know how or when, no, they were not voices, they were not words, not, not silence. But from a street I was summoned, from the branches of night, abruptly from the others, among violent fires or returning alone, there I was without a face and it touched me. I did not know what to say, my mouth had no way with names. My eyes were blind, and something started in my soul, fever or forgotten wings, and I made my own way, deciphering that fire, and I wrote the first faint line, faint without substance, pure nonsense, pure wisdom of someone who knows nothing. And suddenly I saw the heavens unfastened and open, planets, palpitating plantations, shadow perforated, riddled with arrows, fire and flowers, the winding night, the universe. And I, infinitesimally being, drunk with the great starry void, likeness, image of mystery, Felt myself a pure part of the abyss. I wheeled with the stars. My heart broke loose on the wind. Poetry arrived in search of me. I don't know. I don't know where it came from. From winter or a river? No, they were not voices. They were not words nor silence, but from a street I was summoned. From the branches of night, abruptly from others among violent fires or returning alone, there I was without a face, and it touched me. Let's sit for